This morning, I, I, I want to talk to you about identity. Identity is how you define yourself. It is what you think about when you think about you. It's what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror. Now, psychologists, those who study identity, says that there are three factors that contribute to our understanding of who we are. And, and those three factors are, are these. First, it's our past. Our past experiences help us define and understand who we are. The, the second factor that contributes to our understanding of who we are is what other people think about us. That may make us uncomfortable, but the reality is for all of us here this morning is what, what, what the people think about you, the likes that you get on social media, the comments on your post impact what you think about yourself. And the third factor that contributes to our identity, to our understanding of who we are, is if you are a person of faith, is what your God says about you. So those are the three things. So your past, what people say about you, and, and, and what God says about you. Now, if I were to ask you to rank those three things in order of importance, to rank those three things in, in, in terms of what most contributes to your understanding of who you are, what most contributes to your self-identity, what would come first? For most of us, I, I, I would think it's, it's what other people think about us. Whether you want to admit it or not, our understanding of who we are is, is, is partly based on what other people have said about us. Then there are others of us who, who our past experience, both negative and positive, contribute most to our self-understanding. And then, for the rest of us, those of us who are incapable of telling the truth, <laughs> we would say that it's the Word of God <laughs> that contributes most to our self-identity. Now, my mama told me bad things happen when I lie in church. Now, I just want you to take that and do with it what you will. The reality is that we think based on our, our self-identity. Our self-identity is based more on what people think about us, based more on our past experiences than it is based on what the Word of God says about us. And, and it's my goal this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm going to state what I'm going to try to do ahead of time through this text. My goal this morning is to transform your self-identity by getting you to prioritize what God's word says about you more so than anything else in your life. 
My goal after our time together this morning is for you to have your self-identity based on what God says about you rather than what people think about you or, or rather than your past experiences. We're in Judges chapter 6, uh, but before we get to the book of Judges, we, we got to go back to the book of Joshua. Now, now, the book of Joshua tells us the history of Israel's entrance into the promised land. And, and in the book of Joshua, we are told that a man named Joshua leads Israel into the promised land and they begin to do everything that God told them to do. They begin to conquer territory after territory, evicting all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and claiming the land for themselves. That's how the book of Joshua ends. At the end of the book of Joshua, we have this hopeful optimism that the Israelites, in obedience to what God has told them to do, will conquer the entire territory of Canaan and claim the promised land for themselves. When we get to the beginning of the book of Judges, our hopeful optimism is turned into bitter disappointment when we discover that the Israelites are failing to do what God commanded them to do. They are not only failing to evict the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan, because of the continued Canaanite presence in the land of Canaan, the Israelites are becoming Canaanized themselves. They are becoming just like the people who God wanted them to evict from the land. And as a result, God is left with no other option than to bring judgment on the people. You see this persistent pattern in the book of Judges. Israel adopts the behaviors and the practices of the people of Canaan. God uses the people of Canaan to oppress the Israelites. The Israelites, because of their suffering, because of their oppression, now cry out to God. God, because he's good, hears their cries and sends a hero. That's where we get the name Judges from. The hero in the book of Judges is always that person that God sends to rescue Israel out of their oppression. And God rescues Israel. Israel enjoys a, a, a brief period of peace before returning to their disobedient behavior all over again. Let, let, let me repeat that pattern so that you can understand. Israel disobeys God. God punishes them. Israel cries out to God. God saves them. Israel begins to disobey God all over again. And if that pattern sounds familiar to you, it's because it should. Because that pattern is not just describing Israel's history, that pattern is telling your story. Your story is this. You get into trouble. 
And because of the trouble that God allows to come into your life, you begin to cry out to God. You begin to come to church. You begin to pray. You begin to read your word. And God, because he is good, rescues you and delivers you from out of your trouble. And once you get out of your trouble, you begin to do the same things that got you into trouble in the first place. I, I, I know it doesn't happen here, but, but at the church I pastor, I always can tell based on their church attendance what's going on in people's lives. There are some people in my church, I know they don't come to church here, but they come to my church, the church I pastor. If I see them in church on Sunday, if I see them praying at the altar, if I see them in Bible study, I know one thing, that something wrong is going on in their lives because if, if everything was okay with them, I wouldn't see them on church on Sundays. I wouldn't see them at the altar requesting prayer. I wouldn't see them in Bible study. The unfortunate reality for Israel and for some people, remember, I'm not talking about y'all, talking about other people. For some people, God has to bring trouble in their lives in order for them to turn to God. For some people, God has to put them in a very uncomfortable position so that they can fall on their knees and turn to God. And at the beginning of Judges chapter 6, we find that pattern repeating itself. In Judges chapter 5, God had used a woman named Deborah and a man named Barak to rescue Israel. And at the beginning of Judges chapter 6, we, we are told in, Israel enjoys a, a period of peace. And you know what happens when everything right is going on in our lives? We forget that there is a God that we need to turn to. Israel forgets about God. So in order for God to make them remember who he is, and what he can do, God puts Israel into the hands of a group of Canaanites known as the Midianites. The, the Midianites begin to oppress the Israelites, and the Israelites cry out to God. And, 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 and this is how you know God is good. This is how you know God is good. Even when God knows that none of the things that we have promised to do, we will do. Even if, when God knows that the only reason we're crying out to him is because we want him to rescue us out of trouble. Even when God knows that the only reason we're crying out to him is so that he can do something for us, not because we care about who he is, God still rescues us anyway. So beginning in Judges chapter 11, God is raising up the most unlikely hero that we will find in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 11 is the beginning of the prophetic call of a man named Gideon. 
His story begins when an angel of the Lord drops by a sacred, holy, religious site belonging to the family clan of a man named Joaz. When the angel of the Lord gets there, his purpose is to call the next hero of the book of Judges. And as we would expect, when the angel of the Lord sees that hero, he is doing exactly what all heroes are supposed to do. He is hiding because of fear. Verse 11 describes the scene. Now, now, some of us, because of the historical context, might, might need to explain this, this scene, explain to us, so, so we can understand the extent of Gideon's cowardice. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites now. Now usually, the activity of threshing wheat is done in an open area on a threshing floor. It's not done in a confined area like a wine press. The, the activity of threshing wheat in a wine press would make something that's already difficult to begin with nearly impossible. Let, let me put it this way. It's Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, my, 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 whether it's my mama or my wife, they, they throw down. We talking turkey, collard greens, macaroni and cheese, candied yams, sweet potato pie, you name it. Now, imagine if my wife tried to make Thanksgiving dinner, but instead of making it in a kitchen, she went into a half bath and tried to make Thanksgiving dinner. And instead of using pots and pans, she used a toilet seat. And instead of using a stove, she used a match. Imagine how impossible that would be. And, 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 and that's what Gideon is trying to do. He's trying to make Thanksgiving dinner in his bathroom using only a match because he's afraid. Verse 11 sets the scene. And verse 11 tells us something about the man. Because Gideon is hiding, we know that Gideon is not the type of person who will defend his property and stand up for his rights. Because Gideon is hiding, we know that he's not the first person and he certainly wouldn't be the last person you would call upon if you needed somebody to fight. And because Gideon is hiding, we know that Gideon does not have the courage it takes to lead Israel into battle against the very people that Gideon is hiding from. Gideon's hiding in this situation tells us that Gideon is a coward. Now, whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, then you're familiar with the cartoon character, Scooby-Doo. I grew up watching Scooby-Doo, and your kids are probably watching Scooby-Doo right now. And, and whether it's our version of Scooby-Doo 
or your kid's version of Scooby-Doo, the, the story is always the same. There's a ghost that appears. And immediately when Scooby-Doo sees that ghost, he gets all scared and starts running away. Even though before you even know anything about the ghost, you know it's not even a real ghost. It's actually a man in a ghost costume. For over 5,000 episodes of Scooby-Doo, it's always the same plot. It's not a real ghost. It's a man in a ghost costume. But yet every time Scooby-Doo sees that man in that ghost costume, Scooby-Doo will run away like he's seeing a real ghost because it's not about the man, it's about Scooby. Scooby is a coward. And in describing Gideon like that, it's because of Scooby Snacks. But, like, <laughs> but, but Scooby-Doo is three times more courageous than Gideon. Gideon is the ancient equivalent of Scooby-Doo. Yet, when the angel of the Lord sees Gideon, and he makes Gideon aware of his presence, the angel of the Lord addresses Gideon with an unexpected greeting. The angel of the Lord refers to Gideon as a mighty warrior. That phrase, mighty warrior, is only used to describe two other people in scripture. It's used to describe King David. And you guys know who King David was, right? King David, at age 13, 14, 15 years old, tells us he was fighting lions and bears as a shepherd in order to rescue his father's sheep. And, and surprisingly, the, the other time this phrase is used in, 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 in the Old Testament, it's in Proverbs 31. The woman of Proverbs 31 is actually described as a mighty warrior. She's described as a mighty warrior because of the extent that she's willing to go to be able to take care of her husband and her family. And in that day and term, in that day and time, all that the woman of Proverbs 31 did was, was would have been described and defined as heroic. So, so you see in what way David is a mighty warrior. And you can almost see in what way the woman of Proverbs 31 is a mighty warrior. But attaching that phrase to Gideon doesn't make sense. Here's the tension of the text. The tension of the text is this. Verse 11 describes Gideon as a coward. In verse 12, God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. What's going on? Here's what's not going on. The angel of the Lord does not call Gideon a, 
a mighty warrior because he sees something in Gideon. I, I, I want to eliminate that from our thinking. Too much of preaching nowadays focuses on the human person. And, and they make God an addendum to our story. Like, like there's great potential in us. There's great courage in us. There, there's greatness in us. And all God needs to do is find a way to unleash that greatness. Too much of preaching nowadays makes God out to be some type of pro scout who sees the potential in us. And all God needs to do is that develop that potential so that we can become everything that we're supposed to become. That, that's not what's going on in this text. There is nothing in Gideon that makes him a mighty warrior. Gideon does not have the courage. Gideon does not have the strength. Gideon does not have the fortitude to be called a mighty warrior. The angel calls Gideon a mighty warrior not because of what's in Gideon, but because of what God can do through Gideon. What the angel of the Lord sees is not who Gideon is, but what Gideon can become when God gets his hands on Gideon. The, the angel of the Lord sees Gideon for what God's presence can make of him. Gideon's life becomes the blank canvas that God needs to paint whatever masterpiece he wants. What the angel of the Lord sees in Gideon is this, is God's ability to take a piece of clay and mold it and shape it into whatever object he desires. And it doesn't matter that Gideon doesn't possess any of the necessary qualities that would make Gideon a mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord sees in Gideon God's creative abilities to make people into something that they are not. You just missed your shouting point right there. What, what the angel of the Lord sees in Gideon is God's power to take someone and transform them into something that they are not. God can take anyone, regardless of their qualifications and skills, and make them into something great. I think of myself as an amateur chef. So what that means is that I'm, I'm constantly watching the, the Food Channel. And, and one of my favorite shows on the Food Channel is Iron Chef. Y'all ever seen Iron, uh, Iron Chef? The premise of the show is this. It pits two world-class chefs, two of the best chefs in the world, and they have a competition to see who could make the best meal. And by meal, it includes a, an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. Now what makes this competition so difficult is that they need to create an, an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert from one basic ingredient. And to test the, 
the proficiency of the chefs, they make them take the, the basic ingredient that, that none of us could do anything with. I, 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 I've seen them make desserts out of bacon fat, because that's the main ingredient. They, they, they've taken clams and, and, and had to use that to make a whole meal out of. They, they've taken, you, you name it, chicken feet, and had to make an a, a, a appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. The, the reason why they, they do, they have this premise in, in Iron Chef is, is because they, they feel that the chefs are so proficient at what they do, they can take anything and make something out of it. Let, let, me, let me say that again. The reason that they do this in Iron Chef, make that main ingredient so challenging, is that they believe the chefs are so proficient, they can take anything and make a, a great meal out of it. Those chefs are so good, I can take off my sock right now. <laughs> and they'll find a way to make my sweaty sock taste good. That's how proficient they are. And what Judges chapter 6 is trying to teach us this morning is that God is so proficient he can take anything and make greatness out of it. He can take a man like Gideon and make Gideon into a, a mighty warrior. And all Gideon has to do to become a mighty warrior is to believe what the angel of the Lord has said about him. And the only thing that you and I need to do to become what God has said about us is for us to believe that what God is saying is true. And for us to believe that what God has said about us, he's capable of doing them. The only thing that we need to make Romans 8.37 in our lives a reality that we are more than conquerors is to believe that God can transform us into being more than conquerors. The, the only thing that we need to, to be able to do everything through Christ who strengthens us is to believe that God is capable of doing great things through us because of the strength of Jesus. The, the only thing that we need to do to, 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 to be able to, to receive every spiritual blessing that God has given us is to believe that God is capable of giving us those spiritual blessings. The only thing that you and I need to do in order to become what God has called us is to believe that God is capable of transforming us into the very thing that he has called us to be. That's the only thing. Believe that God has something special for you in the future. Believe that God is capable of doing that and you can become 
what God has called you to do if you, if you believe. But Gideon's struggle is that Gideon does not believe. Read the rest of Judges chapter 6. And here's what, what, you are, what you'll discover. God has to convince Gideon that Gideon is who God has just called him to be. Let, 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 let that let, wrestle with that for a minute. Wrestle with that tension. God has called Gideon this, this mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't believe it. He's like, I don't believe you, God. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't do that. And for the rest of the story, God is convincing Gideon that Gideon is what God has called him to be. And, and, and I want you to pay attention to something Gideon says. And I think it's in, in verse 15, where, where Gideon begins to describe his personal inadequacies. And Gideon says, hey, look at the family I come from. You know, look. Look at my past. Remember we talk about what, what shapes our self-identity? He's allowing his, his past, his, his own conception of himself to shape his, his self-identity. And, and, and as if God is limited by Gideon's past and his qualifications. Do you, do you ever think of yourself like that? Like, like God has called you into something and, and you're arguing with God like Gideon did and, and you're pointing out all the things that, that can't make this a reality because you believe that, that God is limited by your qualifications and by your past. But, but, but you're not doubting yourself in that. You're actually doubting God. If you can give God an excuse as to why you can't do what he's called you to do, then then you don't have a, a self-esteem issue. You have a God-esteem issue. You don't believe that God is capable of working through your limitations. And I know y'all Bible readers, so y'all know how the, how the story of Gideon is, is completed. For the rest of this story, God has to show Gideon that he is powerful enough to overcome Gideon's impotence. That's why he says to Gideon, when Gideon calls 30,000 men, that's too many people. <laughs> You're doing too much. <laughs> and he has to reduce that fighting force to 300 people so Gideon can know that God is capable of working through him and transforming him into whatever God has called him to be. Gideon, I called you a mighty warrior. Now I'm going to show you that you're a mighty warrior. And what the story of Gideon is trying to teach us is that God shouldn't have to go to those lengths for you to believe that you can become what he's called you to be. And I want to finish our time together this morning by challenging us just to believe we are what God has called us to be. Believing is the first step to becoming. Remember we talked about it. Believing is the first step to becoming.
And the belief that you need to have is not a belief in what you're capable of doing. The belief that you need to have is not the, a belief in, in your strengths and, and, and your potential. The belief that you need to have is a belief that God is able to do beyond what we will ever ask or think. If belief is the first step to becoming, then we and I need to believe that God is capable of transforming lowly, unqualified, unproficient, incapable people into heroes, into people that he will use to, to transform communities and families, into people who will bring him glory, into people that he can use to change history. Will you believe that about yourself this morning?